When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, it's Dan Levitard. This is South Beach Sessions. I've just been talking to David Sampson and John Skipper at the height of where business and sports intersect, and I wanted to get them together so you could hear what their conversations would be like because they've got some unique expertise and vantage points on some of the things happening. Mike uh, Whittingham, you guys just heard those two guys talking. I crave that so much in business around sports, some sort of expertise and fluency in some of the things that I'm watching that I don't have. And I thought hearing them talk about power and money at the top of sports was super interesting. You mentioned their perspectives. I enjoy the fact that they are contrasting in that, you know, for there's one moment you'll hear where David Samson says, well, let me show you what it's like inside the owner's meeting when John Skipper presents his version of a rights deal. Here's the other end of that conversation, what we're saying behind your back and kind of connecting media rights provider and media rights holder and all of the different ways that those things interact. I decided to do this at Whittingham because I thought or the other day that you were super curious and engaged on what is streaming going to look like in the future. All of these entities are going to be fighting for the sports content and the world, the entertainment world is changing right now. Deals negotiated by Skipper deals negotiated by Samson are going to look far different in 10 years. I honestly think that David Samson, I know he leans into some of that with his podcast, nothing personal. You should check it out and follow him on Twitter at David P Samson. That's what's important that I get that out there for him during the local hours. I think that uh, he could be the premier business sports business reporter. You look at all the sports business reporters that are out there. A lot of them have legal backgrounds. So does David, but he's also been in these rooms he has negotiated these deals. I think he has a unique background for it. And if he wanted, and look, he's got a he's been very successful in all paths of life. If he wanted to do it, I've no doubt he could supplant, I think it's Darren Ravel right now, as the premier business reporter. Well, and Skipper did the SEC network, the Longhorn Network, this sea change that you're seeing in college football right now. The reason we wanted to get these two guys, their expertise and their vantage points, is because the business of sports is changing right now. And we decided to do South Beach sessions a little bit differently this week. Here are John Skipper, CEO of Metal Arc Media, and was the most powerful man in sports negotiating these deals for ESPN and David Sampson, former Marlins president. John, at ESPN, you were at the forefront of sort of realizing, hey, college football is a giant sport. There's giant money around all these college football things. 
I'm still surprised with all the giant money that the coaches are getting this much now, that it's $95 million, $85 million, whether you're Mel Tucker or James Franklin. Are these guys worth that money? Is the business model, does it look to you like these CEO types are worth the money they're being paid? I think they are worth the money they're being paid. It may seem outlandish to some people who are making you know $53,000 a year and don't understand why you have to pay a football coach five or six times what you pay the university president. But relative success on the football field leads to excitement from your donors, leads to increased admissions, leads to lots of people showing up in your town for a football game and spending money on hamburgers and beer and parking tickets. So yeah, it's probably a 12-0 Miami is certainly worth $8 million more than a 7-5 Miami. That's for Mike Ruiz to feel good. Yeah, I don't think we need Michael Ruiz to feel any better than he feels given what's happened the last couple of weeks with Miami. I think when we decide what we're going to pay a coach or a manager, you definitely take into account some of the things you said, John, but I never took into account hamburgers or any sort of people coming into town or certainly admissions And here's why. The reason why football coaches to me are all of a sudden making this amount of money is that universities are realizing that they are getting fewer and fewer students to pay full freight tuition. They are therefore running at a deficit operationally in a way that they never had before. Order of magnitude is just getting larger, COVID related or not. And what they're finding is that people like you running broadcast empires who are willing to pay rights fees in numbers that are probably irrational, but based on the need for live content, that sports live content in the college area drives so much revenue that if you can get a program that is attractive into a conference that's attractive, it's going to do way more for your bottom line than almost anything you can do in any other department. And I think people, university presidents specifically, think that the coach is the key master to that money, and that's why they're doing it. Yeah, it's just a market, right, David? I mean, it's just a market. It's what you've got to pay Lincoln Riley $10 million to get him to leave a nice University of Oklahoma job to come to USC. And USC right now is probably embarrassed by the performance of their football team over the last decade or so. And I do think it is a bottom line decision. It's also an ego decision. It's also a keep your boosters and your donors happy. And again, you... You were um, working at a professional sports team where people drove in from town. But if you're in Tuscaloosa, having 80,000 people come into town is good for your town. People spend money. They spend nights in hotels. They go to local restaurants. And the university cares about that. So I, I think it's a pretty sound financial decision. Again, there's lots of ways to poke holes in it, to complain about it, to grouse about it, compare it to... Uh, teacher salaries. By the way, I did a bit of math. They could have hired 418 new public school teachers in Florida for what they're paying uh, Mario Cristobal. Is that fair? I don't know if it's fair or not. No, it's not fair. No, fair is not. No, it's not fair in any way, but it is something that you could just point to the capitalism in it. Because John, I want to get from you the idea of when it is you spotted the market inefficiency of, oh my God, there's so much money around live sports, streaming, the future, all of this is going to change. And if I just make a couple of networks, if I make a Longhorn network, if I make an SEC network, I've got just money spilling all over the counters. The SEC network made 
a nine-figure profit in its first year of operation, which was split between the SEC and ESPN. So with all respect to my friend, Mr. Sampson, paying the conferences that amount of money, a very financially sound decision. We made very significant profits at ESPN while these things went up. When you ask me when I realized it, the first conference deal I worked on was the Big Ten, uh, which came up in 2005. And uh, we were competing with Fox to buy the Big Ten. And we did a 10-year, $1 billion deal. And that was the first billion-dollar deal in college sports for the rights to most of the Big Ten's games. They kept some games for the Big Ten Network. We should never have let the Big Ten Network happen at ESPN. Wasn't good for our business that those games leaked out of the system. But Jim Delaney had the smart idea to launch a network with Fox, which he did. And that also was good business, though it had a rough start. John, please don't misunderstand. I am not begrudging what you do at, when you're throwing money at conferences or, or at leagues. I think it's outstanding. It's what we depended on and what we counted on. I was saying the opposite, that live content and the requirement for sports to be that live content, it's an insatiable desire by the people who are paying your bills who are paying the monthly fees. And we can talk about what's gonna happen with a la carte and, and cord cutting and everything that's happening. But John, I think what you did is investing in all the live content you did is exactly why salaries in sports are so high for players, for coaches, for GMs, for presidents, why teams are worth so much. So we're definitely yep. speaking the same language. The question is, if you're a college football program, do you try to pay the least money possible or do you not even negotiate with these coaches and you just look for a name and pay them whatever you want because it's a rounding error at the end of the day? It's probably close to the latter, right, David? I mean, these... They're not running a tight P&L. They're paying what it takes to get a coach because of the extraordinary demand, right? When you're in a losing program at a university that is used to winning at football, it's a disaster for the chancellor, for the athletic director. Your fans don't find it acceptable at the University of Texas to be sort of a just over 500 program every year. They're paying, what, between 5 and $6 million uh, for a coach, and they're going to end up paying between 8 to $12 million for a coach in the next year or two, probably. I'm not predicting, by the way, anybody's being fired. I'm just suggesting that ultimately it's not – it's not acceptable at any of these schools to lose. I discussed on a recent Nothing Personal what happened, what's going on in Texas with the Pancake Factory. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but there are boosters who are giving offensive linemen. They're now on salary, these players. They're making $150,000 a year to be an offensive lineman at UT Austin or the Texas Longhorns, and it's all from boosters, and it's all under the fantasy of NIL, which as you know, when that happened, it's a fantasy and that schools aren't involved. Of course, they're involved in making sure their players get paid. But you see coaches getting all this money and it is trickling down to players. We are five years away from every player on a major college team making as much, if not more than their professors. Do you know, David, I mean, is it possible that um, uh, somebody can pay a quarterback $5 million? 100. There's no limit to it, is there? Not only is it possible, but that's the direction it's going. I would agree with you. It's going to be, uh, it's a bad pun, it's going to be an arms race for quarterbacks, and they're going to end up getting paid more money, and you're going to look at these 8 and $10 million coaching salaries, and pretty soon you're going to see a 3 to $5 million quarterback salary. 
so here's the irony that everyone's paying coaches so much money, but really what you're looking to differentiate yourself is which boosters you bring to the recruiting meeting and what amount of NIL you offer to the high school kid who you are recruiting. So you can walk in, Nick Saban came to my son's high school and he was recruiting a guy who currently is an offensive lineman at Clemson. He landed in his helicopter on the field at University School in Davie. Everyone's mouth is open. They're all excited. It's Nick frickin' Saban. How great is it? And the only question was, hey, how much money are you giving me? It's not all that impressive with your helicopter anymore. I once heard a fun story from Hubie Brown when he was, shockingly enough, the recruiting director at Duke University. And they brought in a very tall, you can figure out who, a very tall uh, center prospect from the mountains of North Carolina who came accompanied, so the story goes, by his dad and uncle. And the first thing they asked Terry Sanford, who ran for president, was the president of Duke is, what will you be paying my son to play here? Yes. Because he's been offered a very nice salary by one of your competitors in the ACC already. And we'd just like to make sure that you're going to be paying more money. Terry Sanford, I think, politely told him, at Duke, we don't actually pay salaries to the players. Now, this was back in the 1960s or 70s. It seems very quaint, doesn't it? <laughs> what was the movie, Dan, with Bo Bridges, who played the father, not Jerry Maguire, but his son was being recruited and there was a scene is, in the driveway. It, it is Jerry Maguire. Jerry Maguire was recruited. Kush, Kush Lash. Uh, it was Jerry Maguire. Yes. Kush Lash, Kush Lash. His father. It's just, it's amazing how much, how much this world has changed. We've gone, I mean, this is nuts. You guys are talking about totally changing college football. What's the SEC going to look like in five years, John, when you're talking about, you guys think in five years we're going to be paying cornerbacks $3 million? Or quarterbacks. I, he said quarterbacks, but cornerbacks will get paid too. I think what college will look like, it's going to turn into a true minor league system the way the minor leagues are. They're professional players. They're getting paid that feeds into the big leagues in baseball. And college is always a feeder, of course, to the NFL, but it's going to be in a much more official capacity. At some point, you may even skip the taking classes part and have the NFL run the whole damn thing. It is uh, remarkable, and I don't know why people keep trying to start a second professional football league, because we already have a second professional football league. People underestimate how big college football is, right, John? That, that is the market inefficiency that you were exploiting when you realized televised college football. Like, you ended up cracking a system that was broken because the rules couldn't stay the same when the money was about to change that much. If the These salaries have always been available to these coaches. Well, big salaries have already always been available. The inefficiency was that there was no mechanism to broadcast all these games. Right. So you couldn't pay all that money at ESPN. We decided we would pay the money and we were going to broadcast all of those games. And that's why we launched an SEC network and an ACC network and a Longhorn network and an ESPN three is because we had to find some way to actually put all these games on. Now, this actually is one of the few moments that we'll talk about today where it was good for the fans right? Fans of Georgia Tech suddenly could see all 11 games that their team played. And in many seasons, that's a delight. A few seasons, it may not be a delight to see all those games. But that is that was one of the positive benefits of it, is that you can see all those games. John, on behalf of every man, I would like to personally thank you 
for having all of those games available. I know you did it out of the goodness of your heart and to Pretty. really help all those fans. Well, but, Thank but, you, John. But, but, John, what is the math on that? When you go into the math on that and you're looking at the market and you're saying, okay, what will it cost me to broadcast these games and how much can I get for these games and why isn't everyone doing this? Like, how is it a revelation? Is it something that, uh, that it's more than just you that's seeing this as a business strategy? What are you spending there to get what? Well, everybody eventually saw that college football was underpaid, right? That there was upside for that. And it's, I'm always surprised and interested when broadcasters talk about making money on a specific event or a sport or doing a PL. Our business was overwhelmingly distribution fees, right? And if I added a SEC network, I, I got paid by the distributor. Uh, and you didn't know exactly how much you would get paid before you negotiated it. But advertising was about a quarter of the money that came in. 75% was distribution fees. It is, and it will get us into an interesting discussion. The issue is those distribution fees are going to decline. I don't know if they've declined in aggregate yet, but they will decline over time. And they'll have to be translated into subscription fees, which will be dramatically harder. A lot has changed over the years, but you know one thing that hasn't? The great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? I pose this question to you. I don't know. You tell me right now. Okay, yeah, that's good. I like that. Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. The best thing for me about a nice Miller Lite is when I'm on the boat, I bring those tall, I, I don't even go for the, the regular 12 ounce cans. I hit the tall boy 16 ounce cans. They usually come in a four packs wherever I buy beer. You put it in the cooler, you put some ice on top. The moment you take it out and the sun reflects off that gold top of Miller Lite with that white can, a beautiful sight out on the open ocean. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling and it tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com slash beach, or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories per 12 ounces, fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. But John, when you are starting a network, I, I can, Dan, I, can I ask the question in a slightly different way to try to elicit a slightly different answer? I'd like to know from you, John, that when you start a network, the math that you're doing that Dan's talking about is that you are doing a multiplication problem. It's pretty simple math. You can do an abacus, fingers, toes, mm -hmm. and you're counting the number of subscribers on all of the different distribution 
networks, let's say the Comcast of the world, the DirecTVs, all the different platforms, and you're multiplying, how much can you get per subscriber? And can you strong arm them to take this new network under the threat of, hey, if you want ESPN, which is what all your clients want, then you're going to take my Big Ten or my SEC network or my ESPN3 or ESPNU. So you are able to do the math up front to have an idea of what you have available to spend in rights fees to get the quality of basically hours, live content hours that you need. Didn't you do it the math that way? Yes, that is accurate. So when there is a lockout in MLB, as an example, and you have a responsibility to show games because you're ESPN, let's say, and you have a deal to show games and you have no games to show because there are none in order to not have to give any of your money back that you've gotten from these subscribers, you have to deliver some sort of content and thus would be born a deal to show, let's say, Korean baseball, right? <laughs> 4 a.m. Boog Shambi from a closet in Bristol so that you're not in breach of contract with your distributors by showing Korean baseball during a pandemic. Is that accurate or not? It's not exact. The logic may be there, but we did not have any contracts that required any exact games to be played. We did not have any contract that said if there are no Major League Baseball games, you have to give some money back. We had a contract. Curling. We had a minimum of games and programming we had to provide, and that included NASCAR races, NFL games, NBA games, Major League Baseball games, ACC games, U.S. Open tennis, Wimbledon. But the absence of any one of those things did not constitute a uh, breach of contract. So we were not in breach. And of course, this is a little bit obfuscatory, but we weren't paid subscriber fees, right? The subscribers paid the distributors and the distributors agreed to pay us a certain amount of money for our service. And it wasn't tied to any exact programming. And this came up again, it came up during the pandemic, right? People kept asking, why am I still paying for my cable subscription when all I want is sports and there are no sports? And the answer is because of a disconnect between the contracts the distributors hold with the broadcasters and linear networks that doesn't require anything specific. It requires something in the aggregate. And ESPN, of course, always had dramatically more games in the aggregate than we were, than we were required to provide. To receive our fees. Let me ask you guys this question because I'm fascinated where the future of television is headed, streaming, owning your own content, the bundles, the blackouts, the fan. How is television viewing of sports going to be different in the next 5, 10, 15 years? David, start with you. Well, I think that we're going to have to start listening to fans more than we ever did. In 18 years running a team, I'm not sure I made one decision with the fan in mind. And I got plenty of people complaining about blackouts. For example, for example, in Miami, you cannot watch the Yankees. You have to watch the Marlins on Fox Sports Florida if you want to watch the Marlins. And there are games that are blacked out all the time, deals with national broadcasters, etc. But what's happening is there's a greater demand for people 18 to 34 
to not put up with that. They want no wall in the way of what they want to watch, when they want to watch it, and where they are when they watch it, and on what they watch it, whether it's a phone or a tablet or a TV. So one of the things that team owners have done is they have tried to get back the streaming rights that they gave away to broadcast networks because the networks were a little bit ahead and they got streaming rights in many deals. And now Rod Manford is chasing his tail, threatening to start his own streaming network. But that is going to have a deleterious impact on rights fees in general, because the reason why networks are willing to pay teams so much for their local rights fees, because that's all you got. And you are going to pay your cable company or you're going to pay to have that network available to you to get the game. And if you don't have to pay that network, that network's not going to pay the team and that team will not be able to pay the players. So this is a conversation that's going to be very painful to have with the union when salaries and salary caps start going down, when rights deals start going down. I agree with almost everything David said. You're going to go through a very difficult period of time in the next five to 10 years in which people are not going to be able to find the games they want to watch nearly as easily as they did in the alts and the 2010s. I will will hazard a guess that people will be nostalgic about paid television before too long because it was a great system and very great value because everything you wanted to watch, you paid Spectrum or you paid Comcast and you could go down through the menu and every college football game was on, every baseball game. It might have been on Regional Sports Network, on ESPN, on Fox Sports 1, on NBC Sports Network, but you could find them all with a single remote and a single service. You're going to enter into a bewildering time where people do not know where their game is because five of them are going to be on NBC broadcast and three of them are going to be on ESPN plus and two of them are going to be on Paramount plus and one of them is going to be on the ACC network. So you're going to have to go to six different places to watch your 12 games. And every week you're going to have to figure out where the hell are they playing this week? And everybody's going to go, why can't we go back to when ESPN had all these games? And I just watched ESPN one, two, three, nine, eight, seven, six, five, and four. Uh, That is going to happen. It's going to be more expensive, more difficult to find. And yes, you're right, David, in time, as the pay TV interest declines, ESPN lost 10% of the subs last year. Now, the sub rate probably went up close to 10%, probably went up 6 or 7 or 8%, so they didn't lose much money. So they can still afford to do all that. But if they lose 10% again next year and 10% the year after, you're right. At some point in the United States, sports rights will go down from media outlets. They will make up for those with data rights and betting premises rights and and NFTs and other things. So I'm not sure I believe salary caps will actually go down. One thing that I would like you to consider is that when we are in a negotiation with networks as a league, we are, the reason why we're always willing to go further out is to guarantee revenue streams. So MLB just signed a new eight or nine or 10 year deal. And the reason why networks have historically been willing to go out that far as well is they like having, and you can tell me if I'm wrong because you've been in the chair, John, but it's nice to know that your plate is full of content and that you don't have to worry about, you stagger the renegotiations of when different leagues run out because you know you're always going to have content so you can keep getting that subscription, those subscription fees. Is that right? Yes. And uh, 
I do think when we did that deal with the Big Ten, it was 10 years. I don't know of a 10-year deal before that. The reason we went long was because you're negotiating with somebody who is going back to either owners or presidents to tell them how much of an increase they got. And that's the only way it's measured, right? That's all you ever read is baseball gets a 220% increase. Nobody says, well, they didn't actually get a 220% increase. What they got was they were getting 400 million. Next year, they're gonna get 450. Year after that, they're gonna get 500. Year after that, they're gonna get 550. Well, you take the average annual of the new 10-year deal versus the last three-year deal, and that is what everybody writes about. And no commissioner goes, well, damn, I'm in the last two years of my tenure, and some other poor son of a bitch is gonna come in here, and for eight years, he has no, he or she has no deal to do. Uh, and the owners don't ever say, well, wait a minute, should we have gone shorter? And um, maybe we could we could get more money three years from now than we can get now because the system, and, and that is what I believe at ESPN we figured out in the Big Ten deal. When we said Jim Delaney can go back to his bosses where the athletic directors and the presidents and tell them that he got a billion dollar deal. Can I take you inside an owner's meeting, John, when ESPN was doing deals with them with Major League yeah, Baseball? Please. So they would present. I was not allowed in any owner's meeting. I'm aware, but it was always good. Sometimes you'd be a guest at the dinner, though, right? The Wednesday night dinner where people sit around and right. pretend they like each other and give an applause to the World Series champion while saying F you behind their breath to the, all the other owners. But in any case, we would be presented with the deal, and the only question that would ever be from the floor would be how much of that are you distributing to the teams in terms of annual distributions? And so break it down for us. We'd ask Tim Brosnan or Rob Manford or Dan Hallam or Bud Selig because we want to have certainty when we're doing our budgets so we can put our payrolls together. So we never would say, oh, we really think you should be going 10 years, not eight or six years, not nine. And there would be committees that'd be formed to negotiate with ESPN. But just so you know, it was all a joke. We just wanted the most money for the longest period of time. And that's it. We weren't interested in all the ancillary programming, even though we'd fight with you about it. We want more baseball tonight, or we want more program hours or less fighting. We just wanted to know how guaranteed our payments were. I think we kind of knew that. <laughs> Even though we spent a lot of time negotiating for that other stuff, I will pick up one thing. I don't think the leagues will get their streaming rights back because I don't think the the media co companies will allow it. You can't operate a subscription service, which is what's going to happen in the future, and have the Florida Marlins game be available to Miami fans anywhere other than your subscription service. It just can't happen. That's going to be a fight because MLB has to approve all broadcast deals and they're not approving any future deals that don't include keeping the streaming rights for the teams. I wish them good luck. If I was negotiating a deal, I would not provide the streaming rights back to the teams for the games that I bought. Why well, how you could you? You're, you're giving away your exclusivity. The exclusivity is the in, – in the modern age of streaming, you guys both know this in the content business, David, uh, there is nothing more powerful than a sporting event that brings audience that people cannot fast forward through, that the last – it's, I think it's the last thing standing, that live sports are the only thing you have to see live. There isn't that much anymore 
in the cable universe, in the streaming universe, that you have to see live other than sports, not appointment viewing when when you can go ahead and just get it whenever you want it. What about the Tony Awards? Yeah. Um, okay, fair enough, but I, I don't feel like that's quite the, the same <laughs> the same stream that we're talking about, but fine. For you, David, yes. For you, the Tony Awards, you get in front of your television, you dork out with some snacks, and yes, the Tony Awards for you, fine. You got me. Way to Thank go, you. big guy. Way, way yeah. to go. You found, <laughs> you, found, you found a market inefficiency. Go ahead, ride the Tony Awards into the sky as a big business in the new content age. No, you guys figured out that this, this whole thing is going to be so much different and how can you pay whatever the Dodgers are paying for cable rights and then allow the team to have its own streaming rights you can't do that you know the Dodgers did that deal John where they got about 250 million as as part of the purchase when Frank McCourt and Jamie McCourt got divorced one of the biggest things when that team was sold was that it was there was a new broadcast deal done and when Fox turned down the deal they were so happy. I was, I was there negotiating a deal that Derek Jeter never took prior to selling the Marlins. And I was there when that deal happened. And the Fox guys were incredulous, saying that that is a loser from second one. And this could be the beginning of the end of these crazy deals. And now as the years pass, I'm beginning to wonder whether those guys at Fox knew what they were talking about. If you were taking nominations for the craziest sports deal ever, that probably uh, sits at the top of your list. And, and baseball approved it. It was, the, it was the craziest approval process when they approved that sale of the McCourts because they wanted to get that broadcast deal done. But it was so irrational that actually the Dodgers, as part of it, they didn't have to count all of it toward their revenue sharing calculation. There were so many things done to get the purchase price up because they wanted Rob and Bud wanted a multi-billion dollar transaction on the books to increase the value of all the assets, which is what Bud thought his main job was, which it is. So they let the Dodgers get away. And it's one of the reasons they have a payroll that they have with revenue sharing robbery that their entire broadcast deal does not count toward their local revenue. John, can you explain to me, please? Uh, I, I don't remember the details on this Dodger deal. Uh, was the cable rights deal like $265 million, or was it a lot more than that? I don't remember the specifics of the deal. I don't remember the exact numbers. I do remember it was over $200 million a year. Yeah, I have I the numbers now. 25 years, $8.something billion. But you also remember there was a distribution issue. The Dodgers were not on television on many of the distribution net, uh, systems in California after that deal because Comcast had to start getting some return. So they were charging such an absorbent, absorbent, that can't be the exorbitant. word. Exorbitant, thank you. Such an exorbitant amount that the subscribers said, there's no chance that I'm paying $24.99 for local Dodgers. So the cable companies said, we're not even covering this. So Comcast ended up eating some pride on that deal, John. I, I think they ended up off of DirecTV for years and years. John, I have a question for you about talent and the way talent is going to get paid moving forward and the specifics of the Scarlett Johansson, Black Widow, Disney lawsuit. What is going to happen there? Is that interesting to you? Yeah, it's interesting to me. I will point out, by the way, as we were talking about college football coaches, that Scarlett Johansson made two times what Lincoln Riley will make to coach the uh, University of Southern California. 
Uh, yes, they are paid well. Actors and actresses are paid very well. And so what I don't I don't know the details of Scarlett Johansson going up against Disney. I just know that uh, content makers want their content. Uh, content makers want their content. Scarlett Johansson's beef with Disney was that her contract paid her bonuses based upon the theatrical box office. And during the pandemic, when there were no theaters open, of course, Disney put the film on Disney Plus, which meant she did not see those increases due to the box office. So she sued. They ended up settling, I think, in a fairly friendly way. And Disney managed to avoid setting any precedents or doing anything that would prevent them from releasing films on Disney Plus simultaneously or separately from theatrical. Oh, I would say there is some precedent that's going to be set because there is no agency in this country who will let one of its actors sign a deal where where there's back end in play, where there is no discussion of what the front end looks like in very clear uh, sentences saying that we are counting streaming, we are counting X percentage of your subscriber base. We are allocating X amount of the monthly subscription to my movie, and we're counting that in the gross and my percentage of the gross. There's going to be some sort of formula that's going to be used because actors are not going to take back end anymore uh, that way because streaming, as we've said, I just, I mean, I had to go to the theater to watch House of Gucci but I stayed at home to see anything that streams from King Richard to any of, to Belfast, to any of the other Oscar nominated movies. I'd rather not go to a theater anymore. And that is impacting the pockets of these actors. They will certainly try to negotiate something like that. I agree with you. And the ones who are at the top of the food chain will get it. And somewhere somebody will get lopped off who will not get it uh, because they're not at the top of the food chain. I don't think, I think it's going to be very hard. You may have a point of view, David. It's going to be very hard for the theaters to recover. The the screens are too big at home. I know people love to go to the movies. I love to go to the movies. I just two weeks ago saw French Dispatch. I love going to the theater and eating popcorn and spilling it all over the place. But I'm not going to go as often as I used to go. Uh, because I can sit home and watch it. So it changed. It changed so fast, man. It's crazy to yeah. me how quickly that the pandemic sped that up so much. It's startling. John, yeah. you have an advantage that I don't have. I was at the House of Gucci movie and I had forgotten it was the first movie I've been to since COVID and I watch a movie every day and I have a perfect view of my screen. But at five foot five, I've spent my life going left and right in movie theaters, trying to look over the people in front of me and get to the side. That is just how I always engaged with content. And yesterday or two days ago at the movie or whenever I saw it, there was a tall guy two rows in front of me and I was able to maneuver around it. But I can tell you, it annoyed me in a way that I'd never been annoyed because it was just part of who I was and what I had to do. But given the choice, I'd rather not do it. Are you sure that wasn't me? I I take a cushion in with me to the theater at 6'3", and I, I always try to sit in front of a 5'5 five, five guy. Dark hair and a toque. Was that you in the overcoat? I, uh, Definitely. Uh, I, yeah. re- I remember feeling so bad for a guy at a heavyweight fight who uh, sat down without realizing that his seat, uh, he was feeling very good about his seats ringside, uh, were right behind Shaq. 
And uh, I mean, right. I mean, he was about your size, too, David. That's like, it. And it's like, oh, no, what has just happened here? Uh, the baseball lockout, David, we talked about it some last week. But what did you find interesting, John, about the sport? Uh, we didn't talk about it enough last week because we were talking too much about the University of Miami coaching search. But what did you find most interesting about the sport locking out, John? I can't tell you that uh, I have any very astute observation on it. I've read a little bit about it, but uh, I've been traveling about and missed some of it. I think Mr. Sampson is probably better qualified to speak a little bit on that, other than just being surprised, right? Lockouts are a disaster, ultimately, for sports. Um, So I hope this one doesn't go on very long. I hope that it works and they can come to some agreement uh, because baseball certainly doesn't need Again, David, help me out here. Baseball really, really is not a sport that needs an extended lockout. But when you're negotiating with a distributor, what is it that will, what does it take to get to a finished deal? What is the most important thing that is required to get to a finished deal? Disaster uh, in not doing a deal. I would say a deadline. And there's no deadline in baseball right now because networks aren't missing games, players aren't missing paychecks, owners aren't missing revenue. There was no deadline, and it's purposely done by MLB and the Players Union to have a collective bargaining agreement expire in the offseason, right? You don't want to expire on July 20th, and then all of a sudden, July 21st, the players could just leave, and you are subject to missing your postseason revenue, which, as you know, is what it's all about. Frankly, if ESPN could do a deal of just postseason, that would be a deal that you'd be inclined to do. So in by having the deal expire in December, you know you have a baked-in number of months. So this is not going to end very quickly. And as I said on the show, though I don't think you and Mike heard it, Dan, because I think either we were in commercial or he was reveling in the Cristobal news that he was breaking, there was a conversation that we had about how baseball survived in 2020 with fewer than 162 games. And so the deadline that Commissioner Rob Manford thought existed for a March 31st season opening game, the owners don't view it that way anymore. They view that if you have an 80-game season or a 60-game season, as long as you save the postseason, we're going to make our money and we're going to be fine. So I'm not sure that the deadline is right there the way we hope it is, which is why I think the lockout's going to last quite a bit longer. Wow, that's, that's really interesting, David. I had not known that. At ESPN, we had most of our important distributor contracts come up at the end of August, just in front of the college football weekend, the U.S. Open, the beginning of Monday night of NFL season, followed not long behind by the baseball postseason, uh, hockey, basketball, college basketball, college football. We found it advantageous for that disaster to be scheduled, right? So that you're, you're exactly right. Our contracts ran out on midnight on such and such a date in front of a big game. And that leverage always worked to our advantage. I'm surprised that baseball and players have agreed not to put that on a date that provides the leverage to actually get a deal done. Too risky. Too risky. And they're both sides are willing to live with that missing that piece of leverage. How about last thing before we get out of here? What is college football and its playoffs going to look like soon as the you know all the things with shamaturism fall apart you see the players are going to get paid the coaches are going to get paid everyone's running toward the television money this is a giant sport 
And it's going to, you know, the SEC right now with Oklahoma and Texas is going to be even stronger and bigger. So I imagine, John, we're headed toward the television dollars of even more playoff games, even more, even bigger, that very soon uh, we will get, the dollars will finally demand that we get a more legitimate playoff. It will have to. Look, one thing is the conferences, there are no conference deals that come up. Right. The SEC is through 30. Hold on a second, John. Hold on a second. What are you laughing at, Samson? Are you laughing at the airplane flying over his island? All right. Give it a second for the airplane to fly. I'm not going to stop here. I don't want to edit any of this. I want to just keep it moving. As long as there's not a crash in the background of something hit one hitting one of your Bohemian island, you can continue your answer now, Skipper. Okay, the the man is laughing at the plane flying behind me. Uh, yeah, it was very loud. It was very loud, and it sounded like it was flying low, and it sounded like it was going to hit the back of your head. Okay, well, you notice how calm I stayed during all that, you know. <laughs> but back to your question, there will be, there will have to be a bigger college football playoff because the insatiable demand for more and more money doesn't have any place to go. Right, because the SEC doesn't have a new deal to do for a long time. Uh, there will be at some point a Big Ten deal, Big Twelve deal, Pac Twelve. There's no ACC deal to done. So yeah, I think they'll end up with an eight or a twelve team playoff. I think twelve makes more sense than eight personally. Um, and then we'll see if they manage. Remember, I'm always amused that five college commissioners went into a room and came out with a four team playoff. <laughs> and then not one of them not one of them thought well wait a minute um, I'm going to be left out once every five years on average are not going to be in trouble when that happens and uh, so we'll see whether five college you think, you, go think, in the room. you think somebody slapped themselves on the forehead after leaving that room and said my god why didn't we just give number one a bye and make it five conferences five well, teams and number one gets a bye you think that happened when they left the conference room I can't remember who was left out first, and I wouldn't call anybody's name anyway. Well, but but hold on, if I may. Pac-12, Pac-12 missed over and over and over. So, yeah, do I think at some point the Pac-12 commissioner said, what was I thinking when I walked out and didn't have an 18 playoff? Eight was the right place to be. I don't know if you have an opinion on this part of it, David, but I did. I was curious because both of you have actually dealt with the people involved. I've often wondered, never mind commissioners of conferences, I've often wondered, because of things that happen in public, whether the commissioners of our big sports, the Goodells, the Seeligs, the Manfreds, the Bettmans, I've had the legitimate question to myself of, are these guys really smart? Like, not are they dumb. Not are they, I'm not asking myself, are these dumb people? But I am asking myself, these commissioners, are they really smart? Because what you just described there, John, walking out of that meeting room and one of them realizing, wait a minute, it's five teams. We need to make it five teams. What's We can't miss out on this. That's just flat dumb. Yeah, none of them were dumb. None of them were dumb. They were precious in going, we can't play more games, right? Isn't it? It's, it's amazing in this environment where we're talking about quarterbacks being paid millions of dollars, coaches making eight, 10, $12 million, that they actually believed, and I think sincerely, that it's a step too far for us to make a bunch of teams play more games. But that, I think that was the 
defining characteristic. But yeah, it no, they're not dumb. But they do face a lot of pressures from a lot of different places, and trying to balance that is hard. So when you have 30 constituencies that you have to deal with, 30 little fiefdoms, sometimes you can appear as though you're not smart. And then if your PR isn't good, and one of the iconic pictures of Bud Selig is shrugging your shoulders when the All-Star game ends in a tie with removing his neck, exactly as I'm imitating right now on this call, that can give the appearance of lack of intelligence or when Rob Manford gives an interview to you and gets flustered and therefore it would appear as though he is not smart. Don't mistake intelligence with ability to be good at PR and to be good at public speaking. Those are two totally different qualities. The commissioners who I've dealt with are intelligent in their own way, but they are politicians above all. Because that's how you get elected, that's how you get reelected, and that's how you get raises, is you have to work your constituents, and that is 30 owners in, in the case of baseball. Gentlemen, thank you for the expertise. Enjoyed the time. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Dan. Thank you, David. Thank, thank you, you, Michael. Congratulations. Congratulations. <laughs> we got some cards over here. Whoosh, whoosh. Thank you for listening. We're going to be doing some more different things with South Beach Sessions where it's not just a guest interview every time. Next week, we're going to have Carl Douglas, Howard Bryan, and Joel Anderson from Slate talking about a new Slate podcast that you're going to want to hear about Rodney King. Their discussion is fascinating. I hope you enjoy it with us next week on South Beach Sessions. Again, a reminder, please, before we get out of here, Levitard and Friends, the podcast network. If you want to support the things that we're doing around here, South Beach Sessions, Stupidity, Mystery Crate. It's growing all the time now because we've got Mike Schur and Joe Posnanski doing the podcast. We have uh, Grant Wall and Chris Whittingham doing football. We need to come up with a more creative name for that. Uh, we're working on it. We've got our best mind to on it. We need you to support the Levitard and Friends Podcast Network. Please do so on YouTube and in all the places where you like our stuff. Thank you. Talk to you next week. A lot has changed over the years, but you know one thing that hasn't? The great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? I pose this question to you. I don't know. You tell me right now. Okay, yeah, that's good. I like that. Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. The best thing for me about a nice Miller Lite is when I'm on the boat, I bring those tall... I, I don't even go for the, the regular 12-ounce cans. I hit the tall boy 16-ounce cans. They usually come in a four-packs wherever I buy beer. You put it in the cooler. You put some ice on top. The moment you take it out, and the sun reflects off that gold top of Miller Lite with that white can. A beautiful sight out on the open ocean. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling, and it tastes like Miller Time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories per 12 ounces, fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer.